Welcome to the Paragold Podcast. This is Jared Pickney, and I'm joined today by former Army Ranger and current owner of Ranger Tool and Die, John Wallace. John, thanks for coming on. Oh, it's an honor. I appreciate the invite. Well, I would like to jump right into it. You were an Army Ranger. Yes, sir. For uh, eight years. For how long? Eight years. Eight years. What was that like? It, it was about what you expect. You go in the military. Everybody goes in the military. will go through basic AIT training. Of course, I was infantry. Uh, so it's a shock. They got to get the civilian out of you. But to be a ranger, then you got to volunteer to go through to a much higher scale, uh, both physical, mental, uh, technical skills. You got to qualify. Uh, they put you through heck, really, through yeah, ranger yeah. school. They're trying to push you, trying to break you, because if you break in combat, a lot of people get killed. Yeah. So the rangers really push as a unit to where you don't give up. Yeah, you know they they starve you. Lack of sleep in ranger school to simulate putting stresses on you that you might have in combat. Because real bullets can't be fired at you in training. Mm-hmm. So they push it to the limit to get you to that point. Because they want to stress you, but they teach you how to take stress and use it to complete the mission. Not take stress into a negative way. Wow. So walk me through what was ranger school actually like from start to finish? The... Like, what's the process of becoming an Army Ranger? Uh, first, your unit puts you through a pre-Ranger program, which is a okay. three-week mini-school to make sure, because it costs a lot of money to a soldier to Ranger school. They want to make sure you're capable of least possibly succeeding. Okay. So what does that entail? Uh, really, patrols, a lot of PT, a lot of push-ups, no food, no sleep, uh, a lot of drill sergeant-type utility. The Ranger instructors mod- take that to extremely high level when you say no sleep like how long are we talking one night we average all for the 72 days you average three to four hours sleep a night Wow. now what would happen is they might keep us up for 72 hours and then put us down for eight and then wake us up when they, when you did get to the point the ris know as a platoon watching you and evaluating you when they pushed you too far and then they'll put you down to sleep wow so start with a lot of pt the yeah, rest, they're kind the, of pushing the, your limits, and then where do, you, where do you go from there? The first phase, it's actually four phases when okay. I went through. There's Darby phase. That's in Fort Benny, Georgia. That's the initial phase. Get you off the bus, yell, scream at you, squirt you with water hoses, everything you can imagine. Uh, you do PT tests, you do swim tests, you do obstacle course. Uh, a lot of qualifications, you just, uh, qualify through rifle there. So that's the initial course. Uh, it's got about a 50% fail rate. Really? Yeah, my class started with, uh, I believe it was 540-something, and there was 128 of us that graduated. Wow. It's phase one where they weed out the most? Yes. What do you think it is uh, about phase one that is the most difficult to complete? Mental toughness. Okay. Without a doubt. You don't have to be a super stud. There was many there that was six foot tall, 200 pounds, muscular, that could just smoke me at every physical aspect but there was times when you see those people i'm done they break and it's all mental toughness wow what was harder mentally was it the the physical strain that affected you mentally or the like the the guys who were actually the the sergeant you know the drill sergeants whoever that were kind of coming in and Uh, darby phase it was the physical part it was the physical part yeah okay so eventually you come to a place where mentally you're like i can't do anymore and those guys are tapping out Correct. Okay, so phase one, 50% of people are like, nope, right. <laughs> I am not an Army Ranger. Right. And, and you and you do have class work. Uh, they do take you into class, teach you patrolling, teach you ambushes, recons, whatever the mission is. And then at the last of the phase, the last 10 days of that phase, you will go out into the training area, or, or the field we called it, and that's where you would apply. You would be selected. It would rotate at random to who was the leader of the unit, and you'd be evaluated how well you could accomplish the mission, both plan it, yeah. implement it, and was it successful or not. Were you ever close to being one of the 50 that that left? Were you ever thinking, I don't know if I want to... Every day. Really? Every day. Every day you yeah. had the thought in your head of, I might quit today. I'm done. Really? Yeah. Is there one moment that jumps out? Over another, where you're like, yeah. Uh, probably the last, uh, to get from the classroom environment to the field environment of Darby Phase, you had to do a 27-mile road march. Uh, you're carrying about 90 pounds uh, with, 
weapon and everything. That was my toughest point. Because like I said, I'm five foot eight, bow-legged. I don't have a long stride. And you go 27 miles, you're doing four, mi- four miles an hour, 15-minute uh, miles. Sounds slow, but when you're carrying 90 pounds and doing 27 miles, it, it's difficult. Blisters, feet bleeding, things like that, you just push through. What were you telling yourself that you think got you through? Like, what were you envisioning? Well, I'm glad you asked that, really, because yeah. uh, in the PC patrol cap that you wear, uh, Rangers don't wear Kevlar unless they're doing an actual mission. They always wear the PCs. Inside, underneath, I had a picture of my wife and newborn child. Mm-hmm. That, that's what kept me motivated. Wow. Just push through for them. That's awesome. So phase one is complete. You make it through. Yep. What? Then you go. Then you fly out to uh, New Mexico and you do desert training. Each phase is about three weeks, give or take a day or two. Uh, so then they teach you missions, operations of how to do it in a desert environment. Uh, because there's many different aspects of how you do a recon mission or a raid, depending on your environment around you. So desert phase was second. Uh, again, you do classroom work. The whole time you're not sleeping or eating, you get one MRE a day. Wow. Uh, if you're familiar with an MRE, it's about 1,800 calories. What was an MRE? Uh, main course. Yeah. Uh, usually got dessert, like a cookie bar, uh, crackers, coffee, sugar, salt. That's about it. <laughs> not something that you want to eat when you get back to civilian life? No. No, but they wasn't as bad as what you think. Okay. I brought a lot home when I was in the military. Really? Yeah. And uh, some of them were terrible, but believe it or not, they wasn't bad. And yeah. when you're starving, you, you uh, could eat that cardboard if you wanted to. Yeah, man. So that's phase two. Yep. Phase three, we then went to Dahlonega, Georgia. One thing that happened to me during desert phase is the second to last mission, I broke my foot. Basically, I broke the, I don't know the bone name, but right there in the center of my foot. And I had to do the last two missions on a broke foot. You think, how's that possible? But that's how strong you become ranger buddies with your friends. Wow. Because what my squad did is broke up my load. They carried it where I wasn't carrying the load. Because once you pull out, you're done. So they uh, they carried my load. I walked on it. As uh, soon as we got in, I went to the Army hospital there. They put it in a cast. By luck, I had Christmas exodus. I had to wear the cast for six weeks. Christmas Exodus, they sent us home for two weeks, and that allowed it to heal. I actually cut the cast off myself a week early so I could go back. <laughs> wow. But Middle uh, toughness. Yep. So as soon as I got the mountain phase, I was a recycle because of the broke foot to let it help heal. You get one recycle. Basically, your class you started with goes on, you, you get held back. Okay. Just, just like in elementary school when somebody gets held back. Okay. So, so you didn't get to finish with the guys you started with? Correct. Was uh, that hard on you? Well, it was, but a lot of them, the next couple of phases, they recycled. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Catch you back, back up. up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you meet new buddies. And in that environment, it's hard to explain. With Within one week, you and your ranger buddy are lifetime best friends. That's how much you depend on each other. Man, what do you... That's interesting. So mission... Is it is it is it just the hardship, um, or is it the mission? Is it both that creates that closeness? I say a little bit of everything, because you can't do things yourself. Everybody wants to. I want to be the one to do it. I want to be. The, but when you're in a combat mission, it takes a unit. Yeah. And you develop that trust of the guy sitting beside you. If you don't, you're gonna fail yourself. Yeah. You've got to rely on them. Uh, you share everything, your life stories, your family. Uh, you you know that guy's going to get you through. You depend on him. In a way, you develop a bond that's above a friendship. Yeah. Do you think that's possible to cultivate that level of friendship in civilian life? Ha- have not seen it so far, <laughs> truthfully. I don't want to say no uh, because I have some great friends. Uh, but we've never been pushed together in a way yeah. like that. Man, that's interesting. There continues to be this theme, it seems like, in pretty much any, every podcast we've had, that hardship and suffering 
plays a really important role. It does. It does. We don't want it. We don't ask for it. But it, it, it's like it forges us. It, it makes Correct. us into better, stronger people and better friends, right? Better everything it if does. we let it. You don't, you don't know uh, what you're made of till you're challenged. Yeah. And stress, like I mentioned earlier, uh, especially in the Rangers, they in a way brainwash you to where you take stress and make it a positive. Don't make it a negative. I can't run a mile in five minutes, but if I'm stressed out and I got bullets firing, I can do it in four and a half. And that's what they try to teach you. Don't think you're a failure. It's I'll complete the mission, though I'll be the lone survivor. Wow. So, yeah, it's almost like it's a challenge that you want to rise. The occasion. Yeah. It's like, hey, look, this is an opportunity Correct. for you to get better. It is. And uh, like combat is a bad thing. But you're trained to the point, it's almost like being on a basketball team when you're sitting on the bench. You want to be put in the game. Now, when you're put in the game, it's a whole different story. <laughs> yeah. So, phase two, your foot healed up all right yep. i guess yep went through mountain phase which to me was the toughest phase physically is that part of phase two as well or uh, that's that phase, phase three? three okay so mountain phase yep. is phase three we were in dahlonega georgia uh if you ever seen the movie deliverance yeah with burt reynolds that yeah. was filmed okay in that training yeah. ground yeah, yeah uh you can imagine the steepness of the mountains yeah. and everything so physically that was the worst plus i went through as a winter ranger so i was in dahlonega georgia in january uh you know, we had ice storm, snow, whatever, but you keep going. Wow. So what all did you do basically in phase three? Phase three, they teach you mountaineering, rappelling, uh, climbing, rock climbing techniques, because you got to move over terrain that the enemy don't expect you to come through. Uh, Rangers specialized in that. Uh, we were always the first deployed. Uh, the ones to get in there and secure the area for follow-on troops to come in. So we had to be able to come in an avenue of terrain that the enemy had to guard down or wasn't expecting us, give us advantage. Is this Were they training you in the mountains because of a, a specific mission y'all were getting ready for, or is that still something the Rangers do today? Uh, still do today. Okay. That's it. We did uh, the fourth phase is swamp phase okay. down in Florida. Uh, that's to simulate swamps, jungles. Uh, so they try to get you each environment, desert, mountains, and swamps. Wow. Uh, there's different techniques over all the missions. The principles of the missions are the same, but the way you accomplish a mission depends on your environment quite a bit. Yeah, okay. And so you went through all four phases. Yep. You didn't come close to quitting except for in phase one? Oh, uh, no, not really. When I said every day, it's every day ranger school. Oh, all the way through every yeah. phase. You would have highs and lows. Yep. Uh, that's where you depend on your ranger buddy. Yep. You know, to kick you in the butt, take him home. Let's yeah. go. Yeah. Uh, next day, you were you were doing it to him. Yeah. Uh, that's powerful. It is. Every day, minus probably graduation day, was not pleasant. Yeah. But it's something that I tell everybody, I don't know if I go back through it, honestly. But I'm the most proud oh, that, I, bet, that I did do it. Absolutely. What would you say... Looking back now, are some of the lifelong lessons that you've taken from being a ranger that you still maybe apply in civilian life today? Uh, number one, confidence that I can complete a mission, hmm. uh, whether it's business, whether it's a home, family life or something, there's uh, no room for failure. That's hmm. the way I approach everything. Hmm. Uh, so, so I applied that in my business, in my family life. Another good aspect of it is just knowing what it takes to bring things together to accomplish. Uh, like I said, nobody can accomplish anything by themselves, pretty much, especially a combat mission. But when you bring a unit together and you're all on the same sheet, and I've applied that in my business, you know, how can I motivate these people to run those CNC machines to want to work there? A lot of times you hear people complain about their jobs and stuff. I've always through the Rangers, learned you got to motivate them, not keep them down. Not. So I, pl I applied that task management, training, counseling, uh, scheduling. You know, a combat mission has all that. Yeah. A lot of people think it's just firing bullets and hoping to stay alive, but there's a lot to it. There's a lot of coordination, the air support. You got, uh, you got your 
surveillance operations where you got support by fire covering you while you move in certain signals the fire shifts so you don't get shot by your own people that's a that's a lot of logistics uh, ammo fuel supply food supply you could imagine it's a lot of moving parts yes yes the like first saudi for example it was a platoon will go through probably i'm gonna guess 300 uh quarts what we use in was that translate to the gallons of water a day so you got to have the supply logistics to follow behind them troops keep them resupplied if you ever run out of your supplies you're dead in the water same thing with business raw materials everything you got to keep the flow going and that's really trained me to be a leader whether it's a combat or business or a leader in my family hmm. how did it change your daily habits I'm sure that your habits looked a little bit different coming out of ranger school than when you went in. Yep, yep. Uh, like as far as like sleep schedule and just all that. Like when, when you get out of ranger school, they give you two weeks off to recover. Uh, for example, I went into ranger school. You probably won't believe it. Back then, I went in 158 pounds. I came out 121 pounds. So they give you two weeks. Wow. Of course, you have sores on your mouth. Your cuticles are all dried out and cracked. They give you two weeks to recover. Uh, That's nice of them. Well, it is, but all you do is eat. Eat and sleep, and I look like a Ethiopian child. Here I'm a 121-pound skeleton, and I had a belly sticking out, which you don't see in the military <laughs> yeah. for a while. But it, it did change. It did change. Yeah. Uh, my sleep pattern now, honestly, and I, I still think it's part of ranger school and the, the military, yeah. is uh, I wake up about every two to three hours now. Do you really? <laughs> I hardly ever sleep past three hours. That pretty much happened. That started pretty much after school. Yep, correct. Uh, the military as a whole, because you, you your sleep patterns are always messed up in the military. You don't have to be a ranger. You know, you can be uh, an accountant. But if the alert goes off, you're up for seventy two hours getting a job done. Whatever you got to do. Yeah. Any other habits that have changed, or is it mainly a mindset? Mostly a mindset. Yeah. Yep. Mostly a mindset. Um, I get sometimes my stories confused, and so correct me if I'm wrong, but the first time we talked, was it you that told me that you had a fear of heights? Yes. Okay. Yeah, part of the Darby phase, where we was talking about, there's mm -hmm. one uh, obstacle course. You had to pass many of them, but one of them, you had to climb a lat climb up a steps ladder, and there was a almost the size of a cross tie. It was 40 feet across water. Uh, no, no handrails, no anything. Halfway through, you had three steps up, three steps down. And you had to walk that. So I'm climbing up this ladder thinking, this is it. I'm done. I'm fell. You know, I'm going to get up there and I'm going to be like that cat in a tree clawed <laughs> on. Because other people had done it before me. Got up there and panicked and they had to get them down. Wow. So the whole way, once I got top, I just shut my mind off and walked across it. Wow. Uh, as soon as I got... Across it, I said, okay, I'm going to pass because I'm not doing that again. Yeah. <laughs> That's the definition of courage. And I think that most people, when they think of courage, they think that you have zero fear. And I think even for me, you know, I, on the outside looking in, I think, man, Army Rangers, like those guys just, there's something messed up in their brain where they just don't feel fear. And that's not true. Not true at all. No. There's just, you're able to turn off, like you turn off turn something or off. go to another level. Yeah, I'm just kind of. Push past it, really, is the best way I could explain it. Were you always that way? A little bit. I think I've always had it. When when I was in high school, you know, I did martial arts, taught martial arts, fought in full combat, full contact tournaments, uh, raced motocross. Always. What, what part of martial arts were you in? Uh, or, karate. In karate. Kai karate. Man, we should get him and Max together. We had Max Bishop on here. Oh, I know Max. Do yeah. you know Max? Yeah, I'm not on Max's level. <laughs> <laughs> Who is, man? No, not, no, I would say nobody in Paracle. Nobody. Yeah, in, yeah, yeah, man. You'll have to listen to the podcast with Max because there were so many stories where I was just like, man, I want to make sure I don't say anything to make this guy mad. No, not at all. Uh, Mike's a great guy. He, he's very quiet. Yes, he is. Not what I'm experienced with him. Uh, but I would love to hear his stories, too, of his training, his martial arts training. Yeah, man. We talked about Gene LaBelle. Did you know he was trained by Gene LaBelle for a while? Yeah, and he was. Go I, I believe he went down trained with the Gracies. Yeah, with the Gracies, yeah. The Gracies, yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, uh, yeah, and the Gracies are uh, one of them. Hoist Gracie, I think, yeah, has come he here several times. 
Yep. I think of hunting together still. Correct. It's like I got this got his number on my phone and it's just yeah, man. So. And, and if you don't track the martial arts, the Gracies are the best of the best in the world. Yes. They're they're almost like uh, Tom Cruise, a celebrity they in are. that world. Yes, and Gene LaBelle, I didn't know this until Max said it. He's the guy that jumped the Dukes of Hazard car. Really? Did I you know that? No, I did not know yeah, that. Yeah, now he also trained Bruce Lee. He like helped train Bruce right. Lee, and then Max yeah, trained under this guy. And he's yeah. like, I've got, he's got him in his phone as Uncle Gene. And so it's like, cool. this is one of, the, it's one of the reasons we started this podcast, because it's like, here's a guy in Paragold, actually Beach Grove, right? Right outside oh. of Paragold's like, and, you know. The stories. The stories, stories man. Got, it's crazy. People don't realize. Yeah. I didn't know you and Max uh, knew each other. Correct. Yep. We'll have to get together sometime, uh, the three of us. Maybe we'll do like, Bill, we should do a podcast, just a mixed martial arts episode with John and Max. And so... Um, so yeah, you said you did mixed martial arts growing up. You, what'd you say? You also did your motocross, say, motocross. Yeah, I raced motocross from the time I was 14 till I went in the military. That was truly my passion back then. Really? Yep. You still into it? Oh, no, nah, I'm, I'm too old. <laughs> Hurt too much now. When I got out of the military, I tried to get back into it. Uh, Fred Greer, great personal friend of mine. Uh, he's the one that I rode with. When I got out, he was like, you know, why don't you just back off a little bit and enjoy it? No, that's not that's not me. I got to go wide open. If I'm going to do it, go all the way. Go all the way, man. Yeah, my, I love it. My father, and you're going to have to excuse my language here, uh, one of his sayings many times when I was growing up, if you're going to do something half butt, yeah. he said the other word, but if yeah. you're going to do something half butt, don't do it at all. Yeah. You know, go all the way. Yeah. Go all in. That stuck with you. Stuck with me all my life. Man. Was that true of you, like, even, like, when you worked jobs and in yep. school and things like that? And that's usually when he would say it to me. When I was a 14-year-old young punk kid and helping my dad mow, landscape, whatever the case, and wouldn't do it to standard, you know, he'd, he'd always tell me, son, if you're going to do it half, yep. don't do it at all. What did your dad do? He's passed away now. What did he do, though, whenever he was alive? Uh, he was a tool guy in Tenneco. Okay. So you came by this honestly. That's what I, one of the questions bit, I was going to ask you, is how bit. in the world did you fall into this? This industry. Well, I got out of the military, had no clue what I was going to do. The only true equivalent to what I did was maybe a SWAT team, uh, law enforcement type. Didn't really want to go that avenue, okay. uh, truly, because, and boy, I, I'm, I'm an advocate for our law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Their pay does not justify their job. No, absolutely. Uh, so that's the main reason I didn't. Truthfully, it was financial. I had a family support. I had two kids. Didn't know what I was going to do. I was allowed 12 months unemployment because I'd spent eight years in the military. One week of sitting around the house, I was done. So a new industry came in town, uh, MMI. I went there and became quality manager. Is this when you were corning? Where was, it, where was this at? This was in Paracle. This is in Paracle. Okay. Yep. All right. My father, we did welding and built trailers on the side. He was workaholic. Uh, he mentioned, well, if we had a good used mill, that's a machine we use in the tool and die to put in his shop that he had at home. So I asked the gentleman who had had a machine shop, do you happen to have a used mill you want to sell? He said, I'll sell you all of it. Next thing you know, the squirrels in my head are running around, and I'm in the tool and die business. My father and I went in as a partnership. Uh, this was when? How long ago? This was in 99, 1999. So we went in partnership. I was going to run the tool and die he still worked at Tenneco so okay. he was kind of a silent partner until he retired uh, MMI called me back to be the plant manager great job couldn't refuse so I was going to go back there okay. my father was going to retire early and take over you know running the machine shop uh, we made this decision on December the 1st he was going to retire January the 1st I went back to MMI in November well he passed away December 13th oh wow so for many years, I was doing both, plant manager in an industry and trying to run my own tool and die business. Wow. You can imagine. So you're burning it at both ends. Correct. But my mentality was, I can do it. Yeah. You know, there's nothing that scares me really as far as that. I'll task manage to where part of my time be allocated here, part of my time be there. Failure was never an option in your mind. You never no. once thought, eh, this might not make it. I thought many times in business, 
kind of like ring school. You always have those bad days, those bad periods where you think, oh, that's it, I'm done. I'm, I'm losing money. I'm going to go under. Uh, you just keep pushing through. Keep pushing through and make it happen. So, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to talk about that. So when um, you officially started the business, when did you say it was again? 1999. 1999. And that was here in Paragold. It was actually oh, was, in Rector. It was in Rector. A small shop, three-man shop, 2,800-square-foot building in Rector. Okay. When we bought it, we ran it for rec- in Rector for about two years. And what but, were y'all doing then? What were y'all making? Same same core business we got now, okay. except a lot less advanced. There was no CNC's machines. It was all manual So you're just trying machines. to figure it out as you go in some ways? Yep. Really? Yep. So I, to me, it's a funny story. When second day I owned the company, I walked out there and I looked at the shop foreman and I said, okay, how do I turn this machine on? I had no clue how to turn the machines on in the shop or anything. <laughs> really? But I, but I was looking at it. It didn't scare me because I look at it more from a leadership standpoint. I don't have to know how to run those machines. I, I have to know how to deal with the customers, how to balance the budget, how to project raw material flow. So that part was second nature to me. Wow. So three people... Mm-hmm. Originally, small operation and rector. Yep. At that point, were you envisioning? Oh yeah, something uh, bigger. Always. You were always. Okay. And so, um, that's continuing rector until how long? We well, moved, what's kind of take me down the progression of the company to when y'all came to Paragold? Uh, Two thousand one, I moved it to Paragold. Okay. What uh, what led to that decision? All the customers, or most of the customers, were in Paragold. Uh, Rector is really a small, almost dying town. There was no customers in Rector, so I was always on the road going from Rector to Emerson Electric to Tenneco or back and forth all the time. We're from Paragold. I lived in Paragold, so that was truly. In day one, I told the the three employees that were there that I will be moving this to Paragold when I get a chance. Okay. So so you moved to Paragold in 2001. 2001. We moved to Paragold. Uh, about that time, my son started coming on board at 13, 15 years old. Uh, so wow. I really got him involved in it. Uh, we, we, we grew. We had seven people at the old location. Where was that at? That was on East Kings Highway. Okay. Right? So, and that's when we branched into the CNCs, you know, more modern technology, faster machines. And what are the CNCs? Explain that. Kind of keep in mind that it's a, we're not computerized numerical control machine. Okay. Basically, a computer's running it. Okay. It has its own language called a G-code programming, where you program it. But once you program it, you're not sitting there telling the di- turning the dials. Okay. Uh, compared to a manual machine, like if I was going to make that coffee cup there out of steel, a manual machine might take three days to do it. We can program a CNC and hold tighter tolerances and do it in about six to eight hours. Wow. So your, your throughput dramatically increases. You're automating. Your quality increases. Have you, did you just become a student of this stuff and just start, like, all of a sudden your mind's being open to, like, okay, these things are out there. Like, this is the way we can make the company better. Are you a researcher? Are you, are you I mean, a student? Not so much. Uh, I research a little bit when I have to. But truly, it's just uh, you're in a new environment and figure it out and make it work. Okay. Like, I didn't take You're any- flying the plane as you're building it. Correct. Uh, that's a good good analogy there. All right. So you guys go to CNC. And that's mm-hmm. a game changer. When was that? Our first CNC was in, I think, 2003. Uh, and, and everybody kept telling me, including the people who sell the CNCs, your, your first one's the hardest because they're very expensive machines. Like my first machine cost $87,000. Okay. you got to figure out a way. That's more than my monthly budget at that time. You know, I got to get the work to to put on that machine to justify operating it. Well, once you get the first one and you're a little scared of it, you don't know how to program it, you don't know how it operates. Once you get past that point and learn it, well, world's wide open. Uh, next thing I know, two a year later, I'm ordering another one, and we're up to we have a uh, seven CNCs now. Wow! Uh, as well as all the manual machines, all the welding, fabricating equipment. Uh, yeah. We're a total job shop is the best way I can explain what we are. Ex- we d- explain that. We do uh, precision work, molds, dyes, you know, where you're holding a half a tenth, a thousandth tolerance. But we also do a lot of uh, fabricating, building baskets, tables, racking, 
whatever the case is. We deal only mostly with industry type. We're not really a public mm-hmm. industry, you know, walk-ins. We do help walk-ins. Many times I get people in there, but they don't understand the nature of our business. It's, a, it's like asking a utility trailer to build you a boat trailer. It's kind of out of our, yeah. out of our yeah. form. So we deal mostly with industry. And truly, as a job shop, whatever they want done, you'll figure out a way to make it happen. Yeah. So things, have you guys, well, I know we talked before, and I want to get into this, how you've had some quick growth as of recent. But from the time you came to Paragould, was it just kind of a slow growth of your company? Were there dips and valleys? Were there still times where you're like, oh, man. Well, I- there were some huge dips. Okay. Like in 2006, I, I really thought it was going under. Really? All manufacturing slowed down. Uh, anytime manufacturing slows down, the job shops take the brunt of it because they pull all their work inside. They're trying to do it. They don't want to send it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was rough that year, 2006. What was that like that year to, you know, you have this thing that you've poured so much into. Failure in your mind is not an option. It was it was probably the hardest mentally, probably more hard harder than a ranger school. Really, because there's variables I couldn't control, and that's what bothered me. Here I'm about to fail at something that's going to affect my family, affect my ego, affect everything, and there was variables I couldn't control. So you have to get out and work around those. How close were you to closing the doors in 2006? I would say 90%. Really? Mm-hmm. So you're having conversations with your wife about this. It's like, what would you have done? Well, at that time, I was actually still plant manager at the other industry. Okay, wow. So I had a backup. And truly, my wife was pushing me, hey, why don't we just shut this thing down? You know, it's we're losing money. You're stressed. You're not happy. Uh, I went the other way. I resigned from from the concrete job because if you own your business, you got to be committed, like anything. You you can't just stay away and it run perfectly. So I, I gave up the plant manager job to go back to the tool and dive, hundred percent. Really, I you da- walked away from a steady income and a very unstable economy, and was like, I'm doubling down to on commit. this. Yep. To keep to keep to keep it from failing. Fight or flight, man, right. and you're like, I'll fight. Because we were down. Yeah. I got down to one other employee, so I was working down there at night. You know, after I leave the plant manager job, I'd work down there at night trying to keep it afloat, and that's why I decided, nah, I got to go all in. Why was the company so important to you? Is this just a passion? But what uh, was driving it? Like a, it it was because it, it's like your child. Yeah. You know, I I was trying to raise it. Yeah. Uh, it had the ranger name tied to it. Uh, that was another reason. Truthfully, yeah. if it's got the ranger name, I'm not going to let it fail. Yeah. Man. So, 2006, uh, almost crashed. When did y'all pull out of that? When did you start seeing some daylight break? Uh, 2009. You know, it so two, there are three years. Yep. It, it, when I went back full time, it definitely helped because okay. I'm in the customers every day. I was going to Emerson Electric, Tenneco, Darling, you know, trying to get work, show them I'm hungry for work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it slowly came back, uh, came back better and bigger, truthfully. You think a lot of that was because of the relationship? Your face being there and just having relationships with people and them trusting you? 100%. 100%. Uh, no, Isn't I've that so much some, of life, man? It is. Uh, I have professional business friends that outside of work, you know, we we play golf together, we talk, we communicate, Christmas cards, you name it. And and that's what you want to develop in business to me. Uh, you know, you don't want to cross any ethical lines. Sure. But at the same time, they're going to, much like a ranger buddy, that supervisor of laminations is relying on me to get him that specialty shaft so he can get his machine up sure. running quick. And you develop those times where you depend on each other. I depend on them for revenue. They depend on me to keep their operation running. Yeah. Is that one of the things you love about what you do? I do. I do. That's why I say I never retire because 50% of it I love. <laughs> yeah. So 2009, things are beginning to change. Pick, pick us up from there. Uh, that's when we start getting into the CNCs where they're rolling. Uh, my son came on board, and I can't speak enough for him. He's our engineer, uh, hmm. and I am biased, like all of you, but he, uh, 
intelligent. I mean, his uh, engineering skills are beyond my comprehension. Oh, wow. Uh, so that really helped. I had a partner, yeah. if you will. Yeah. Even though he was 15 years, 16 years old, he was all in with me. Uh, so we really went at it. We, we built it. Uh, we're looking to grow it still today. Uh, I'm looking to pass it on to him. Hoping to have not just a small unknown business, but I would love to be a pillar of the community with a business. Much like Allen Engineering is. Everybody yeah. knows Allen Engineering. I don't know exactly how many they employ, but that company right there went from a small concrete company yeah. to now there's a large percentage of Paragold that depends on them for, yeah. the, for their paychecks, for being able to buy groceries. Uh, there's a lot of people like me who work out of there. I depend on the revenue from them yeah. to, to boot my business. So that's, that's what I want to get to. I want to get to a point to where everybody in Paragold knows who Ranger Tolendai is. That's awesome. I love your, your heart behind that. I love your heart for the city and that you want to see this company give back like that, provide. So you um, have recently have grown tremendously. Tremendously. What, tell me about that. Well, part of the business relationship talking to uh, the ex-plant manager of NEDEC, Rick Ellis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hopefully you don't mind me saying his name here. Yeah. Uh, we developed that professional yep. relationship. I worked for Rick for 15 years doing his tasks that he needed done uh, to the point to where at times he wasn't afraid to pick up the phone, call me, and chew, chew on me yeah, a little yeah. bit. Uh, he, he went to another company in Jonesboro. I didn't know that. Yep. He, yeah. he resigned from NEDEC, got, got a job that he moved yeah. on forward. Well, two years later, he calls me. He needs some help. So we're back working together, uh, doing assembly work. Because I do want, I did want to branch out, and Rick knew that. Not only do I want to do this specialty job shop work, but I want to branch out to get some assembly work for other industries. Mm-hmm. Kind of spread your eggs out, I guess you mm-hmm. said. Well, Rick was in a bind. He said, hey, you want to assemble, do some assembly work for me? I said, I'd love to. Truthfully, there's a lot more than what I thought he was talking about. Once we got into it, it was going to take a massive labor force because this is all hand assembly, not automated. Yeah. Uh, from August 8th, when we first talked about the job last year, we hired 42 people by August 28th. It's incredible. Uh, and how many did you have before you hired the 42? Nine. 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 I don't even know what the math is on that. But that's a massive difference. How did you have enough room in your building well we didn't we were in at a warehouse off a lawback warehouse really do the okay work. yeah because we we uh the amount of raw materials it took component parts the pallets of them the rack i mean we had thirty thousand parts that i had to put in racks to be able to do this assembly flow so we didn't have the room there uh so i rented a warehouse from lawback out of 42 people and so you're how many now total employed through Ranger Tool and Die? Well, the assembly work, and they told me the project would, but yeah. they basically said it would stop in November. Okay. Pick back up in February. That's the nature of the conveyor business because who they deal with, Target, Walmart, during Christmas time, their concentration is getting stuff out the door, not putting in new equipment. So they told me it would stop. Uh, we rode along. I, I think we've embedded now to where they want to keep. And I, I talked to them into let me keep 12 core people. So when we kick back off in February, I got a team ready to, yep. let's get this ball rolling instead of reinventing the wheel again in February. So now we're down to 21 people. Yeah. No, and that's, but that's incredible to think about how many you're able to bring in, even just for that time. And it seems like you've got a plan to, uh, I want to build even bigger. Oh, wait a we're actually, and it's very premature, so anybody hearing this don't bank on it, but we're uh, looking to put a 25,000-square-foot building on our lot now. Really? Early spring. That's fantastic. That's around the time whenever this will come out, or close to it, this podcast will come out. And so, um, right there in the same location? Same location. We, ha- we have. We- How big is the building you have right now? 15,000. Man, so you're going to almost double another building. Another building. Correct. Wow. Now, this business, truthfully, I know will only last three to four years as hard as it's going right now. Uh, COVID has massively kicked off the, this business. Because uh, conveyor lines, if you think inside, 
I'm going to say Target's warehouse or, or Walmart. People were close together. With the COVID, they had spread them apart six foot. Well, what does that take? A lot more conveyor footage. Uh, yeah. So it, it will, right now, it's it's ramped up and on fire, but it, it will die. But that's where my job's going to be, okay? I got 25,000 square foot building. What am I going to do with it? Now? Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully grow the tool and die into it. Uh, not too much worried about it because... I'm at retirement age. My wife and I has talked about if we if we build this building, and the business stops, well, we're putting it in for. We got a warehouse we can rent. Yeah. Uh, right now, warehousing's real low in Paragould. So. Sure. You've talked a little bit about your vision um, that you want this to you want Ranger Tool and Dodd to be a, a pillar in the city of Paragould. Um, what are some of the lessons you've learned, and uh, maybe that you can share with those who might be listening who have a dream, have a vision. I mean, you're a great, I mean, American success story, right? I mean, Army Ranger uh, served our country, and then you came and just from nothing created something right here, right? Which is kind of what we say is one of the blessings of being in our country is you can do that. You can get a vision, you can get a dream, and you can just say, hey, you know what, I'm going to go after it and kind of make it happen. Um, what advice would you give to those who maybe even right now is like, you know, I've got a passion. I've got something I would like to do, and they're kind of this close to maybe going after what, what what are some lessons that you've learned along the way that maybe you could impart some wisdom maybe you could give just from your own experience that comes to mind probably and i've had this conversation with my son actually who will take over our business is uh, you got to commit you cannot hold back if you have a dream and you're out on the verge of pushing it and you're going to make that final call to push it go all in Trust yourself. Trust. There's a lot of luck involved. Truthfully, hmm. there's a very right place, right time. Right place, right time. But if you keep pushing, you're going to be in that place at the right time. It's interesting. What do you think keeps keeps people from going all in? Keeps people from committing. What are the biggest obstacles? Probably a fear of failure. Yeah. Or the courage to commit. You know, if, yeah. if a lot of people want in today's world want a sure thing to me. Yeah. You know they don't they don't want to put their self out there at risk. And you're not going to get that. Hmm. Yeah. No risk, no rewards. That's a, that's business principle. No risk, no reward. Athletic. I don't preach, man. But uh, there is risk and there's hardships, and you yeah. got to know that it's it's not going to be. I might have a dream of my lifetime. I got an invention. I know I can. The world's going to love. It, nothing goes easy. Nothing goes easy, and you got to keep that in mind. When, when, it, when there's hardships, that's not failure. That's just problems you got to solve. And if you get frustrated, overwhelmed, and, and let it take you take you over, you're going to fail. Such a different mindset. And, and kind of what I've just, from hearing your story, picking up on is, um, to use a term from Jocko Willie Link, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, former Navy SEAL, he, he talks a lot about extreme ownership and just this idea of not passing the buck. A lot of people, I think, are wanting to, always pin blame on someone else or just say like it it seems like for you you took ownership of the problems and and those things they come away and said no no no, i'm going to step up and i'm going to like leaving your leaving a sure thing and saying i'm going to get in there and rather than letting this go under i'm going to take responsibility i'm going to take ownership for it and i think too like it seemed like you had the courage even when you didn't have all the answers and I think, like, for me, that tends to be one of the things that keeps me is, like, man, I, I don't, there's so many things I still don't know, which keeps me from wanting to go forward, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, you didn't know all the answers. Correct. And, and, and like, you never will. Hmm. But you have to build a team, you know, to support those. Uh, I got my son's an engineer. I got a lot of great programmers, a lot of great manual machinists and fabricators. At one time, I knew how to weld when I started the business. I haven't welded in five years. So, truthfully, if I went out there right now, I probably wouldn't even know how to adjust our welders we got. <laughs> but I rely on that team. That's their skill set. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're a unit. I didn't make Ranger successful. The, the team did. That's good. Yeah, team is also very important. It's a big part of your story. And relationships. Uh, right. Building key relationships. Um, where can people go to learn more about Ranger Tool and Die? Um, do you guys have a website? You have anything? We, we, we did, but we truthfully didn't keep it up. Okay. Because I deal with the industry, I really don't have to advertise or or chase out public information. So we let the website go down. I would need to get one back up, but 
Well, you know, one thing at a time, man. I am a procrastinator. (laughs) I'll I'll do that next year. (laughs) Well, you've got a a list of priorities, and I would imagine that's not at the top. Whenever things are growing, it's like, I'm going to focus over there. Have you found, I'm curious, have you found that it's harder to find um, good machinists or good just people? Oh, extremely, especially manual machinists. Uh, The world's changing, technology, everything. You know, the CNCs are still take a high skill set to run, but it's totally different. You're learning G-code programming. But the true manual machinists who can, you know, turn the dials and make something come out to half a thousandth tolerance, that's amazing. It's kind of a lost art. It's a lost art. I was reading, um, what is the name of the book? I think the Socraft of Shop Class. It was written by a Harvard professor that owns a motorcycle shop, and he was saying that how much college at least according to him, has lost its value, a college degree. And basically he makes the point for if you will go learn how to work with your hands, be a uh, HVAC guy or electrician, a plumber, or something like, that, like you're going to be a millionaire because this next generation, he's saying, just has lost the ability awesome. to work with their hands. And so I was curious after I read that book and thinking about you coming on, how difficult it might be to try to find uh, good labor. And I'm just thinking for those who might be listening right now, Learn, learn a trade. Right. Yeah, I've tell, told all my employees, including the assembly, uh, you know, go to school, learn the basics of it. Uh, you don't have to have a master's or PhD to succeed. You only have to have a bachelor's, truthfully. You, but you got to have some kind of schooling, you know, to get you started, mm-hmm. and then you take that and run with it. Yeah. But you gotta, you got to get out there and make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm so thankful um, for your time. Thank you for coming on and hanging oh, out. My honor. Yeah, it's always a privilege to talk to you. Really thank you um, for your service, which, by the way, you, we, we talked a little bit about this before. You were deployed twice. Did I get that right? Uh, or, I did two tours in Korea. Okay. And then I got uh, combat deployed in Saudi. In Saudi. When was that? And were you in Saudi? I was actually after Operation uh, Desert Storm. Okay. We went over, it was right after the Cobar, ta- Cobar Tower bombings, yep. if you remember that, where they blew up an Air Force. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when we got sent over to do anti-terrorism. Okay. But your close call was in Korea. Korea. Yeah. Yes, sir. Can you share that before we end? Sure. That story. Tell, uh, me, tell me about real it. Real quickly, I was assigned to a special operations unit that we truly work for the United Nations. And everybody has seen on TV, Pam and John, the JSA area, where the buildings have the line between them. That's where we were stationed at around there, to do live patrols to protect that area in the DMZ. One uh, Koreans wanted to come to the negotiation table to try to get food. Basically, the North Korean mentality is a little bit of a terrorist threat, that we're going to create trouble if you don't give us food. They're, mm-hmm. they're starving over there. Their country's ran where the military is number one. Soldiers mm-hmm. are fed, civilians just starve. They they came into the area. You're, you can only have so many people in this JSA area. You can't have automatic weapons. You're only allowed to carry a pistol. That's by a piece. They moved in 137 fully armed soldiers, heavy artillery, uh, they sent our platoon to face them. It was more of a political pawn, if you will. You mm. know, uh, at that time, it was uh, President Bush. Maybe not his call, but filtering down, they want to give the impression that we're really not concerned. Is that what they're telling you? Yeah. Okay. You know, we were deliberately sent there under man to show them, you don't scare us. We ain't no, no threat. Uh, scared of our my soldiers. 21 of us, and our orders were first shot, unload everything, because it's going to go down. We're facing 130 to 21. They pulled away that night. Next night, alert went off again. They moved in about 438. The third night, they moved in 550-something troops. And we're still 21 troops, and we're 50 yards away from them. It's it's not like we're long distance. We're looking at my die. Of course, we had all of our—we had— Mark 19s, which are automatic grenade launchers on Humvees. Uh, but I did tell my soldier, I remember telling them, keep your weapon on safe. A lot of time in that situation, you will go live weapons. I said, keep them on safe because one accidental discharge is going to set this whole thing wow. off. Uh, you're in a mission, you're in a position to where one shot, you know you're done. Now, a mile back behind the mountain, we had four battalions on standby to come in. 
How long would it take them to arrive if you called them? Ten minutes. Oh, okay. That's but pretty quick. Ten minutes. Of yeah, that's so, though. It's a lifetime. <laughs> so, uh, God blessed us. You know, they backed away. What uh, made them back away? Uh, I believe, not for sure. I believe the U.S. gave in, gave them some food. Okay. Kind of settled the situation down. All over the world, you have hot spots. A lot of people don't realize. You know, you know the big stuff. I have guests, Afghanistan, yeah. Saudi, Vietnam, but every day there's hot spots in the U.S. The military's facing. Wow. You just don't ever hear anything about it. No, we don't, man. Yeah. You you almost just forget that kind of thing's happening. Yep. And so. And that's where you got, uh, I still, to this day, highly respect law enforcement, soldiers, because they put their life on the line every day. Now, it may not be dramatic like a Vietnam War, but much like in that situation in Korea, the week before, it was calm and cool. And then at any second, you just lost your life. For your country, you know, you're giving up your family, any aspects of growing a business later in your life, and to, to be able to put that courage there every day, man, you got to give them some credit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm very thankful for your service. Thankful. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you, you for the risk that you took in order to protect us and care well for us, and thank you for your investment in our city. So, yeah, I pray that uh, God continues to bless what you guys are doing so that you can be a blessing to our city and beyond. So thank you for your time. Uh, thank you. I definitely appreciate it. It's a two-way street. city yeah. supports me, and I'm going to try to support them. Awesome. So that was John Wallace, former Army Ranger and owner of Ranger Tool and Die right here in Paragold. Lots of great lessons from that conversation that I'll personally take away, and I hope you do as well. We are just getting warmed up at the Paragold Podcast. There are so many more episodes that are set to be released. And so if you have not been to our website, check us out at www.paragoldpodcast.com. If you are on iTunes, please give us a good review um, so that more people can find us. And then be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and subscribe to our email list. Until next time.